at the moment we kind of see average as bad, you know, or your only average or just average. Mm. In actual fact, my position is that average is should be a relief, not a disappointment. You know, that there that by the nature of of how the world is in the bell curve, you know, 10 of us will be exceptionally good, maybe 10% might not be good, and then 80% are average. So if we can sign mm. average to being bad, then we can sign 80% of the population to feel disgruntled. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to welcome Coleman Nocter to the doctor's chair today. Coleman is a mental health lecturer in the Southeastern Technological University. He's a psychotherapist. He's an accomplished author. And his latest book, The Four to Seven Zone, is his first departure into the world of adult well-being. Coleman, welcome to In the Doctor's Chair. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Coleman, this term, the four to seven zone, talk to me about that. Yeah, it's something that I've been probably using with clients for quite some time. And maybe it's a reflection of where the world has maybe gone for the last number of years. I, I was kind of feeling that we were kind of being driven into the extremes of things all the time, you know, that there was almost that everything we did, whether it was to get fit or to, you know, be happy or to engage in some sort of even maybe well-being and wellness had become quite excessive. We had to do this very extreme version of things. And what I noticed was a lot of the people that were coming to see me, you know, if you're asking someone how they are, you oftentimes ask them to rate that out of 10, you know, to get a kind of subjective Mm -hmm. idea of where they are, whether it's sleep, appetite, mood, anxiety. And all the, the people who were talking to me were either in the zones one to three or eight to 10. And what I realized was I never met the four to seven people. You know, they were the people who never really needed to come to therapy or come for support. And I suppose I I had an idea that maybe we can learn from the people that you never see, you know, in terms of trying Mm -hmm. to, to think about that. And, you know, I think in mental well-being and mental health, we always say moderation, moderation, moderation. But I wasn't quite sure whether we were good at knowing what moderation was, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of this idea of how much is enough. You know, and that's one of the questions I think when you work in media circles, most of the questions you get is, is this too much? Is this abnormal? Is this OK? Or And there was kind of an, an I, I think there was a lack of clarity around how much is enough. So. The four to seven zone is basically built off that principle. It's about trying to tune into where where we're at and what we're doing and trying to strive for the middle, which is a kind of an odd idea. I think when 
at the moment we kind of see average as bad, you know, or you're only average or just mm. average. In actual fact, my position is that average is should be a relief, not a disappointment. You know, that there that by the nature of of how the world is in the bell curve, you know, 10 of us will be exceptionally good. Maybe 10% might not be good. And then 80% are average. So if we can sign mm. average to being bad, then we can sign 80% of the population to feel disgruntled. So the four to seven is kind of a celebration of average. It's a kind of a strive for the middle. And I think it's a, something around maybe in response to the way in which I think we are becoming polarized as a society where we have to be extremely one way or the other, and you have to pick a lane and you have to be both sides. And there's a kind of a dissing of sitting on the fence, you know, in, in terms of that being probably a cop out and all that sort of stuff. When in actual fact, maybe the middle isn't the worst place to be and maybe it's the safest place to be. And when it comes to well-being, I think it probably is. And so, yeah, so the the book is is very much written off the premise of how do we stay as moderate and in the middle as possible? You know, mm, interesting. I mean, I'm just I've had I have a number of reflections just listening to you there, Coleman. My first one is something I speak about: this idea of destination happiness. A lot of people are sort of, I suppose, they're sold this idea maybe through social media and so on that they need to do X, Y, or Z to be happy, or they need to achieve X, Y, or Z in their lives, and. Of course, that implies that you must be unhappy right now, whereas perhaps contentment starts with accepting who you are and allowing yourself to be more present today, appreciating that it's far from perfect and perfection never exists, of course, for any of us. And in your words, accepting perhaps that things are okay and perhaps good enough. Yeah, and and I think the idea of... Again, the idea of happiness being a kind of a, a very momentary experience, mm. you know, and I, I would have done a lot of talks in schools over the years and maybe to transition your students and you'd ask them about what you understand mental health and well-being to be. And majority would say happiness. And then you'd say, well, how much of your life do you think you spend happy? And the answers would generally be between 70 and 80 percent. And when I tell them that in reality, we probably spend about 2 percent of our lives happy, you know, in terms of ecstatically, euphorically happy. They were quite surprised by that. But if you expect to feel happy 70 percent of the time and in reality, you're only that way 2 percent of the time, then 68 percent of the time you're going to feel like you're missing out on something. Do you know what I mean? And almost like and, and you know, the idea of social media is it is the highlights reel of people's lives. You know, and the mm-hmm. idea of I always remember I watched match of the day with my son, you know, and we watched the highlights. And then we went to a game when after COVID and we got back to watching the matches and he was incredibly bored by this 90 minute thing that was, you know, he much preferred the, just seeing the goals and the interesting bits. And it was kind of the idea that the highlight reel is not the real reflection of how things are. And if we take the highlight reel as how other people's lives are, well, then, of course, we're going to feel like we're missing out or we're not enough or certainly that we're falling behind in some regard. So, yeah, I, th- I think how much is enough? And, it, and in many ways, we've kind of, I think as a societally, we've kind of lost a concept of enough. And if you're if you're content, are you settling? And settling seeing to be, again, this kind of having negative connotations of having no mm. drive or having no kind of volition where in actual fact contentment is quite a position of acceptance rather than uh, settlement, if that makes sense. And it can be absolutely priceless to have that sense of inner peace and contentment. I'm reminded of this lovely, uh, you know, phrase that the man who has enough is the man who knows he is more than enough. And 
it's to let go of this idea of of maximizing and and chasing and as you said acceptance yeah and i think the idea of um you know i was a big harry potter fan but there's this thing called the mirror of desire in that where you looked in and you could see you know the quidditch captain or winning the cup or whatever the case would be and, and the, he said the happiest man in the world would look into the mirror and see himself exactly how he is you know it's almost that mm. kind of a bit like what you've just said there but again to not be striving and it's almost like you know the, the, the way in which we meet people and people say how are you and we say busy you know almost as a badge of honor that this is how we should be um mm. in actual fact the idea of you know if i'm and you know maybe if i'm not busy maybe that's a good thing as opposed to necessarily being a, a symbol of laziness or that i'm i don't have to get up and go with somebody else you know what have you learned, Coleman, through your research and the case examples you use in the book, this four to seven zone that can enable people maybe to better navigate their lives? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that it's inevitable to end up in one to three or eight to ten. Life will throw us these mm. curveballs and whether it's stress or bereavement or relationship breakup or loss or whatever it might be, we will experience. I feel it will experience extremes. The key is not to stay there. Uh, and the idea of almost finding your way back to four to seven, you know, the idea of, I use the example of if you go and visit someone who's just broken up from a relationship and they're very sad and they're sitting in the tracksuit and they're, you know, listening to sad music or whatever the case would be, you wouldn't rush off to go get an appointment with a psychiatrist because you'd say, look, this is a normal reaction to events. If you'd returned 12 months later and they were still in that same position, you know, their mental state hasn't changed, but they haven't found a way out of it. And the idea of Mm -hmm. almost allowing ourselves to to struggle and to wobble and to go into those zones, but actually the goal being to find our way back. And it's almost like, you know, failure is not falling down. It's maybe refusing to get back up. And that idea of... Mm -hmm. Again, when you're still trying, you're you haven't failed, you know. And I, I like those ideas of, um, you know, and it's not about embracing failure or looking forward to it, but it is about trying to surround yourself with people who can help you to find the way back to something. Mm. And in much of the therapy journey, is just about comp- being a companion on that way back to the middle in some respects. And it doesn't necessarily always mean you have to do anything extraordinary. But things like presence, being listening to someone and being company for someone can even be a huge benefit and feeling maybe not so alone on your way back to that being okay. You know, and the other side of it is, you know, we have a lot of saying it's it's okay to not be okay, but also it's okay to be okay. You know, I think there's an idea that, you know, we all must struggle with something. I love that. And I think it needs to be said more often. It's okay to be okay. <laughs> mm, yeah. And, and again, I, I would think in terms of how we manage that. And again, I've gone, I remember going to, to kind of schools and things again. And I remember visiting a primary school and this wonderful teacher was showing me around and she said, this is our worry wall and this is our worry plant and this is our worry branch and worry bucket. And I was going, gosh, if I was a kid in this class and I didn't worry I would think there's something wrong with me. Do you know what I mean? That uh, that idea mm. of it's actually okay if you're not worried as well. Do you know, I think we have to be yes. mindful of that message that it's okay to be okay. And, you know, I, I, I suppose it's really about the little things, isn't it, Coleman? You know, it's, as you said, being present, surrounding yourself with people that are going to support you and encourage you. You know, a word I love is the word growth. I love gardens and and it's amazing, you know, if you hack back an old camellia, how a year or two later it comes back stronger than ever. 
and the idea that, you know, the, the struggles and setbacks of life can really enable us to grow. Yeah. And, and, I, and again, I think there is that idea of, you know, without disappointment or frustration, then can we learn to cope with it? You know, the idea is that, and I think there is a kind of a, maybe an, uh, an aspiration that we would go through life without adversity or if adversity comes that it, 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 and of course it's uncomfortable, but through any growth, there has to be some degree of discomfort, you know, and there can be no movement or momentum without vulnerability, you know, and I think that idea of when you're vulnerable, most likely you're doing something that's difficult and that hopefully when that vulnerability passes, you know, it's almost like that idea of you have to almost reach the discomfort to come down the other side. But, but again, I, I think life, it's about how do we manage those areas of discomfort? And, and I, I would have been somebody who's quite critical of things in the past of, you know, well, you can't walk it off or you can't just have a bath or you can't just do these things. Some things you can't meditate through or whatever, you know, that I would have had that view. But I think the more I see it, if you have lots of the things, like if you can get mm-hmm. your sleep right, if you can get your balance of your nutrition right, if you can get your exercise right, if you can get enough social support around you, like mm-hmm. all those things together, you know, they don't tend to be as obvious, but together they're much more than the sum of their parts, you know, in that, in that sense. And if you can line those things up, it can be, it can make a magnificent difference. I've seen it so many times over the years, though, those small little 1% changes that sort of compound together to really provide a great foundation for somebody to move forward. And of course, life issues can't be meditated away. You're not going to sort everything with a good night's sleep, but it helps. Mm. And eating good food will help and having great conversations with people will help. And little by little, day by day, you can you can get get and find your way back. Yeah, and it's fascinating because I think when you think about trauma or something like that, and somebody is trying to trace back how they've ended up where they are, in very few cases, it's one event. You know, it's a series of little things that happen over a period of time that almost erode your sense of self-value or self-worth where you find yourself. And the recovery is the same. It's not going to be one big thing. It's a series of little things that almost allow you to, you know, it wasn't maybe one big thing that ended up you feeling this way. It's not going to be one big thing that's going to make you feel different. It's a combination of those little, as you say, the the game of inches, you know, and it's a series of 1% um, rather than looking for the, the 50% swing, you know. I'm a big fan of talk therapy, Coleman, as as a GP. And I suppose most of the people that you see in your therapy practice are in that one to three zone. But in terms of people that are in the maybe in the four to seven zone, would you advocate maybe they would go for talk therapy at times as well? Obviously, I work with people through talk therapy. So it's something I would absolutely find a value in. I, I think... Um, there's a need for us to maybe not exhaust our own resilience levels first, but there are things within us that almost, you know, uh, I've had parents come to me and they may have you know, described a child who's struggling with something. And the advice might be not to bring that child to therapy, that in actual fact, you know, that, that might make the child think that this is something about them that they're maybe struggling with, that this is something through their own resources and their mm-hmm. own kind of skill set they should be able to manage or that, you know, by all means, if they try that first and that doesn't work, then maybe there's something in it. But I think there's, you know, again, a bit like that, you're kind of building the muscle, you know, you have to put it under a bit of strain first. Yes. And I think, yes, talk therapy is fantastic, but 
talking with peers and friends and family mm. and you know cousins or relations that's helpful too and so it wouldn't be something i would jump into but certainly as someone who you know as part of my training i had to go for therapy i was in the on the, on the couch for uh, total of seven years over the t- course of my life. And I didn't opt for there because I didn't have anything particular to iron out, but mm-hmm. certainly would have found a huge benefit from it in terms of yes. my own awareness of my own blind spots and things like that. So, um, mm. yeah, uh, maybe that's an indulgent luxury a little bit, but but from the point of view, yes, it definitely works, but you know, maybe not the first port of call all the time. Maybe there's something that you have to trust your own process a little bit first as well. Yes. And I think awareness can give us that clarity to see things a little bit differently. And I I suppose the other thing is increasingly nowadays, perhaps there's a tendency to maybe medicalize normality or or, or tend to want to over medicalize, as you rightly say, what are maybe just normal hiccups uh, in life's experiences. Yeah, and I think that's probably an area I would worry a lot about. You know, I, I would worry that mental health promotion sometimes becomes mental illness promotion, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, there's lots of social media platforms that are, that seem to kind of almost pitch the idea that you might have this or have you ever felt this way? Well, you could have this mm-hmm. if you ever had this. And most of those things are are, are life problems, not illness mm-hmm. problems. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so from the point of view of, um, you know, we can put labels on anything. You can have sweaty feet or smelly breath. You can put a title on those things either. And if we over-pathologize emotion, then we almost look for some sort of idealistic cure for that or some sort of treatment or intervention. When in actual fact, sometimes that's a life bubble. It's a life bump. It's a bit that needs negotiation. And, and a label or hanging our kind of hopes and aspirations on something being pathological. It might seem simple that there's a simple solution, but um, oftentimes pathologies are tricky enough to treat as well, you know. Um, So, you know, I I would worry about that in some ways we do a lot of, or we are struggling a lot of self-diagnosis and and I would worry about that. I think there's there's no need for us to pathologize life. It, It makes it a bigger deal than it perhaps is. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I think life is to be lived and experienced and savoured and enjoyed. Coleman, what would you say looking back to your 21-year-old self? Yeah, 21. Um, 21, I was just left Ireland. I was in England at that time. I went to work in Great Ormond Street Hospital in the mental health services there. I loved that decade, that 21 to 31 was a fabulous time. And I, I use the expression that I think life is a series of creating stories. You know, we're all just creating stories and the stories that were, and they they tend to be the richest stories that I have, you know, the ones I mm. remember. And when I meet up with friends now, we always recall those times, you know, there's such know. a fun element to it and everything else. So if I was back there, I'd be saying, make as many stories as you can, you know, and be one with huge regrets, but I would regret turning down opportunities that I maybe had back mm-hmm. then that I don't have now. You know, that mm-hmm. idea of whether it was a night out or going away for a weekend or going meeting somebody and mm-hmm. you passed it up because you're maybe just not tired or bit, you know, what not in the form for it. You know, as a person in the in the, the mid forties now, I'd give anything to have those opportunities again. So it was kind of to make as many stories and savor those experiences because they're mm. they really are great. You know, I love that, and you know, there really is so much research now showing that you know investing in in experiences can really be so good for our our, our well being and, and building up a treasure trove of memories as well that last. Looking forward, Coleman, then three five years from now. 
what do you hope might be different? Um, do you mean personally or in culturally or? You can answer that any way you want. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's, I, I worry a lot about children's mental health. There's, there's mm-hmm. an area I worry a lot about from the point of view of how I've seen it evolve over the last maybe 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would love to see in three or five years us kind of listening more to the voice of the child a little bit. And, you know, I think what we've done in, in many ways is we've hijacked a lot of children's activities the adults have kind of got in and ruined it a little bit when it comes to children's sport or activity or academics. You know, I think we've kind of imposed adult models on children. And, you know, when you hike up competition, you automatically decrease the fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to see children be left up to their own devices to make rules a little bit, to have to spend their own time, to to be less adult led in that way mm. um uh, i see it in terms of how it impacts on children's ability to make decisions uh, and to be autonomous decision makers that we almost disable their ability to make decisions when we take too many of those decisions for them so that's one thing i would love to see i'd love to see the adults step back a little bit and let the children have that kind of unstructured play it's something i really think is missing and then secondly i just wish that we could get past the idea of the polarization of, you know, having to the extremely this, extremely that. I I, I worry that the, the, uh, the space for debate or middle conversation or to voice a worry or have a question, um, I worry that that's not available to many people. Uh, and I'd love to see us get back to that a little bit or or even if it's not back to it, to, to create a space for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm creating a space for all of us to be heard and to be really human. Mm. Yeah. Someone I know in America, Dr. Elaine O'Brien, she's just written a great book on the power of play and a really, uh, you're highlighting play and fun. I think it's so, so important to our sense of well-being and for building joy and creating memories, you know, for us maybe to be a, a little less serious at times in the world and perhaps be a little bit more playful. Yeah, and I, and I think there's an idea that that um, we can coach creativity out of things, and I suppose I I would say that the teenager young adult sphere, like with the resources that they have access to, they've never had more choice. You know, there's never been more versions of yourself that you could be. But in actual fact, I would say there's probably less diversity in terms of the, the I remember you know I was getting my I was graduating from DCU a number of years ago my mother was with me and my mother was be in her 70s and she made a remark she said everyone looks exactly the same now obviously we're all in gowns and caps but she was actually right you know the idea of the fear of painting outside the lines mm-hmm. maybe has become so worrisome or so loaded in that you know even though with the tyranny of choice gives us more options that perhaps the safer choices are the ones that we make. And and again, I think play is it's uncoached and it's not it's not manufactured play and it's not structured play. It's about being autonomous. It's about being creative. It's about taking chances. It's about mm. learning, turn taking, you know, and, and making mm. up your own rules a little bit. And yeah, I, I think I think we could all benefit from a bit of uh, of play. Well, creativity, learning, being spontaneous, creating play. These are all great, great concepts, Coleman. How do you stay healthy yourself? Um, 
physically, I, I played tag rugby on a Monday night and it is sacrosanct. You know, I, I would never book anything in on those nights. It's something that I, I and I, I organize it. So I kind of use that as a kind of a reason why I have to be there. But uh, I really, it was the one thing that I missed the most during the lockdowns when we, when I couldn't do it. It was a real, it's a real outlet for me, those physically and just to switch off. And I, I'd be a kind of an active relaxer by definition. So that I think is hugely important to my health along with the odd walk here or there, I have a wonderfully supportive parents. Like I, I'm telling you this as a 45 year old man and my parents are in their late 80s and late 70s, but they would still be a huge support to me um, in anything that I would be struggling with in my life. I'm very lucky to have them still with us and still very much uh, sharp and, and wise to the world. And I would still lean on my, my mom and my dad for, for advice around things. And I think the idea, of the endless role of parenting is probably, I, I live that a little bit. So the support of my family and friends, and I, I would, I don't have as many friends as I might have had 15 years ago, but I have good ones uh, and they'd be hugely important to that. And, and look, and I'm a dad of three small children and as much as they are work sometimes they are a wonderful grounding aspect of what is important so i would i would say I'd lean heavily on them as a a light relief mm. to maybe some of the work that i do during the week which can be on the heavy side you know yeah i must say my reflection is you're so lucky to still have your parents and you know to be able to have them to to draw on for for advice and support and, and wisdom I count myself so lucky to have it, but uh, I certainly get every drop of wisdom out of them. I would lean heavily on them, even for, you know, simple advice around what car I should get or what I, you know, the next move in my life, I would always tend to run it past them. And, uh, and, and again, you know, through my teenage years would have thought they would have had nothing to add in, in by way, way of wisdom. But over my lifetime, I've kind of said, actually, they probably do know a little bit more than I give them credit for. Well, you're reminding me of Mark Twain, that wonderful saying, you know, when he said when he was 14, he couldn't get over how stupid his father was. But when he was 21, he couldn't get over how much his father had grown in the seven years. I've got to borrow that. I love that. Yeah. 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 Coleman, three take homes for a resilient mind for our listeners. What would you suggest? I mean, I think the idea of being able to prioritize is crucially important. I think it allows us to not sweat the small stuff. And I, I would really encourage us to to take a moment and, and see what is important. And is it is it the stuff that's occupying most of our time? And oftentimes we'll find that what's occupying most of our time isn't what we would oftentimes deem as most important. So that ability to prioritize, I think, is crucially important. The second thing I'd say is guilt should be related to intent. You know, if there wasn't an intent there, then guilt is hard to attach to. You know, I find a lot of people feeling guilty for things. But when you make a decision, you're going with the consensus of that given moment. You don't you can only make a decision based on the resources you have at your disposal at that time. In hindsight, it might turn out to have been the wrong decision, but it wasn't intentionally made. Very few people intentionally want to get it wrong, you know, and the idea of feeling bad and guilty that we've gotten it wrong. Go back to your t- intent. If your intent wasn't there, then the guilt shouldn't be there either, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the last one I think is, uh, I mean, again, I know there are lots of people who are introverted and maybe like kind of solitude, I suppose, in that way. But for me, the, the connection is so important, you know, and I think so something I've certainly learned over the last number of years that when we couldn't have it, just how much of a gap it left in my life, you know, not having those connections with people and seeing them in the flesh and seeing and embracing them and having those kind of social pieces. And I, I always regret us calling the, the term social distancing. I would have much preferred physical distancing because um, the social part was, mm -hmm. it was tough for everybody, Absolutely. but it was something that I didn't anticipate to struggle as much as I did. Yeah. Mm. And loneliness is the most terrible poverty and, you know, really can cause so much havoc in terms of people's mental health and, and, and physical health as well. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, and, and again, I, I'd say when young people come through, and I, I would have worked in a lot of you know residential settings for young people mm. who would have been really struggling with a lot of really difficult things, really acutely unwell. And when they leave, when you ask them about what was the difference, you know, what made the difference, what was the vehicle, they never say the medicine, they never say the session with Coleman, or they never say that one thing that was said, they'll say the other young people. You know, the other young people who helped me or were there in those dark moments or were there in the evenings or there at nighttime and that feeling of that not aloneness, you know, it, it's always you can rely on it as something that people will say made the difference. You know, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We, human beings, we really do need strong social connection. It's 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 absolutely massive mm. in terms of our, our well-being. Coleman, finally, for you, what's the meaning of life? Oh, I think for me, and it probably it's in line with my favorite word, which is authentic. I love authenticity. It's something that I strive for in my own life. And I try to be as authentic as possible. And at the start of every therapy relationship, I open it by saying, I guarantee you, I'll be 100% honest with you if you're 100% honest with me. And that might not be what we either of us want to hear at that moment, but we'll go with that. Without that principle, we're going to struggle. And I think if you are able to be as authentic as possible, you're open to real experiences. And it was funny, I started a job about a year ago and people were coming to me and the compliment that people were saying to me was, you're so normal. And I didn't know how to take that at first, but now I reflect on that and I think that's really cool. I like that. I like being really normal. Uh, and I think people meant that by there's no notions or things about you. You're kind of authentic and what you see is what you get. And if they're standing on the on the pulpit giving my obituary, I hope that's a word they mention. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful word to be authentic, authenticity. Coleman, it's been wonderful having you in the doctor's chair. Keep keep leading and inspiring. Keep being your authentic best self and spreading that message that it's absolutely okay to be okay and that good enough is more than good enough. Coleman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.